Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When Scripture deals with any sin, our natural reaction as human beings is to look around and single out others for committing that sin. Once this happens, it's not long before we accuse or abuse others in the name of righteousness, or worse, as in the case of World War II, accuse and shame people of a specific religious or ethnic group committing unspeakable horrors against them in the name of the Bible. This behavior continues today against many peoples and many religions and is exactly the behavior that Mark condemns in his account of Judas's treason. In the Bible, it's not about who you are or what you believe. It's about how you choose to behave once you have been chosen to hear the good news of God's teaching. Once we have received the Gospel of Mark, we have been called. If we are called and subsequently turn our back on God by mistreating others, then truly we are Judas and we have betrayed Jesus Christ. Given the magnitude of Judas's mistake, this should give all of us pause. God willing, such a long pause that we would think twice before our next action. Do we welcome immigrants and foreigners with open arms? Do we zealously pursue peace in the face of violence? Do we show mercy toward those who have been accused? Most importantly, do we recognize our own sins before looking to anyone else? A life committed to the teaching of Jesus Christ is a fruitful life well worth living because it is given in service to mercy, charity, hospitality, and compassion toward others for the sake of the common good. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 17 to 21. This week's episode is followed by a special interview with Father Paul Nadim Tarazi about his new book, The Rise of Scripture. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 198 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week we talked about Judas and his connection to Judah, his connection to the people of Judea, and we talked ultimately about his connection to the Jewish people in late antiquity. And we made it very clear to the audience that while in Romans Paul is using the stumbling of the Jew to bring the gospel to the Gentile, he is not saying, he is not saying that the Gentile is better than the Jew or replaces the Jew. He's saying that once the Torah is preached, everyone is caused to stumble over the tree in the garden and everyone understands their nakedness before God. 
This is the critical point, which means that once you understand that God is using his instruction to expose his people, he's also using the same instruction to expose your behavior. And now in verse 17, we are shifting gears. We are moving into the Eucharistic meal. We are moving into the Last Supper, which means now people are sitting at the Eucharistic table, sharing the bread of life, and he's raising the question of betrayal. In the New Testament, the insiders are Jews. The outsiders are Gentiles and Romans. That is what is so radical about Paul's gospel is that he's saying that there ultimately is no distinction between them. In God's eyes, they're the same. When we hear this one is betraying Jesus, this doesn't mean the Jews, those people are betraying him. It means those people who are chosen by God betrayed him. This is what's significant. The ones to whom God gave freedom whom God gave knowledge, they are the ones who betray God. So when we hear about the malevolent Judas, it's not talking about the Jews going to the synagogue downtown. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the insider who is supposed to know, the insider who has Torah, the insider who has the knowledge of God, and then rejects the very one who gave them that knowledge. Once you hear the gospel of Mark, you are Judas. This is the point, because the knowledge comes with hearing. Once you hear the gospel of Mark, you're under its judgment, and then you are on the same level as the Jew, which Paul would say is an honor, because remember, the more you are put to shame by God's grace, the more honored you are. Scripture is honoring you by shaming you with the Torah. This is what Paul is arguing. If you have Torah already and you don't follow it, it's worse than someone who doesn't have Torah and doesn't follow it. If you know what you're supposed to do and don't do it, it's different than not knowing what you're supposed to do and then not doing it. So if Judas is an insider who has been there with Jesus, who is Judea, who received Torah, to betray that instruction is that much worse and that much more shameful because so much more is expected. The difference in the New Testament between the Jew and everybody else is that God took the stumbling of the Jew and made it into something fruitful. Now Paul says in Romans, does that excuse their sin? Definitely not. Because if you think it excuses your sin, you become self-righteous. The whole point of the teaching is to keep you in a permanent state of unself-righteousness, which means it can never praise you, it can never let you off the hook, it can only remind you that you were once a slave in bondage, and now what is happening in the land towards your neighbor? Why are you treating this person like a stranger or this person like an enemy when I rescued you from Egypt? And that specific teaching could be easily applied to American Christians in the way that they're treating foreigners today. The mood in the country is wicked. So please, let's get out of the business of he said, she said, this group, that group, and get into the business of the cross. I love this line from the liturgy of St. Basil. We have done nothing good upon the earth. And he's referring to the people in the church. 
He's saying, your community, this flock, the church, has done nothing good upon the earth. Have mercy, O Lord. Now, if you're going to defend and try to explain, well, the church does some good things, Father Mark, then you're not scriptural. You're not getting the point. You're righteous. God bless you. Go in peace. I myself am a sinner. And you think that I'm putting myself down when I say that. But everybody knows if you're Pauline that when you say I'm a sinner, you are boasting because it means you know scripture. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And as I said earlier, Richard, this is Eucharistic terminology. Every Christian should be very uncomfortable hearing this because you're going to go on Sunday and you're going to dip your hand in the cup with Jesus and the text is telling you, you betrayed me. And how does he know you betrayed him? Because you're going to leave church and you're going to abuse somebody at work. You're going to gossip. You're going to neglect your children. You're going to cheer when we bomb some foreign country. You're going to turn your back on a homeless man. And then you're going to go back next Sunday and take communion. That's how we know we're all Judases because it's mathematically true. They began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, surely not I, which is what everybody says. This is not a complicated text. Everybody goes to communion on Sunday. Then everyone turns their back on the teaching and behaves like someone other than a member of God's flock. And then they act shocked when they're called out for their behaviors. Can't be me. That's why I tell people all the time, the worst sin is when someone is dishonest with themselves, not dishonest generally speaking. Dishonesty is a problem, right? But the worst kind of a lie is when you are dishonest with yourself. How could you say, surely not I? It is you. And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. I remember distinctly in my youth having a trouble with this verse because if the Son of Man is supposed to be killed, as it is written of him, then the one who betrays him is only playing a part in that great important history. So if you're playing a part in the history that's supposed to happen, how could you be punished or even looked down upon for playing your part? The thing is, is that even if someone performs incorrect action, it can be used by God in the greater scheme of things. Just because it's what leads to the present good does not mean that it was all the time good. The betrayal is evil, but God can make something good come of it. Look, the expression, it would be better for him had he not been born, if you take it philosophically, it's going to be a never-ending theological discussion about fate and justice, which is silly. Because I just explained that it applies to the Christians as much as it applies to the people of Judea. The point is that it's an extreme statement meant to emphasize the depravity of betrayal. It's meant to put pressure on us. But the fact of the matter is, a life that isn't given in submission to the instruction to bear fruit in the Gospel of Mark is a wasted life. And the point that Paul makes in Romans is very powerful, that this betrayal 
can be turned into something life-giving through God's mercy and generosity. But you cannot then say, I'm off the hook. You have to see that he was generous and made something out of your sin and do something about it. But the key point is that what good is it that you were born if you don't bear fruit? I can't stand it when people say, how could you say a life is wasted? A life can be wasted. Don't produce anything. I'm sorry if that's uncomfortable, but a life can be wasted. And you have one life. And it's not wasted because it's short. It's because it's not fruitful. So that's a good place to end this week. It's a short episode, but there's a lot to chew on when you think about how you yourself, as a member of a believing community, are subject to the judgment against Judas. Typically, people believe Judas is the bad guy and we're with Jesus. That's not what the text is teaching us. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to a special edition of the Bible as Literature podcast. Today, we're very excited to have as our guest on the show, our professor and teacher, Father Paul Tarazi. Good morning, Father Paul. Welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you very much. Great it's to have great you on the show. to be here in the cold of St. Paul. It really is cold. <laughs> Father Paul came on the first snow, I think. That was providential, as Father Paul would say, because that way we would know not to mess with him. <laughs> In any case, Father Paul just released a new book. It's called The Rise of Scripture. It represents 40 years, more than 40 years of scholarship and teaching and discipleship. I mean, we talk about Father Paul as a teacher, but we all know from Father Paul that the only good teacher is a good disciple. And Father Paul has taken this very seriously in his service of the teaching of Jesus Christ. And so this book represents not just all that time and all that scholarship, but this persistent dedication to the content of the biblical teaching. So Father Paul, we want to welcome you and congratulate you and just ask you to talk about your book and about the project. You know, the last five years of my teaching at St. Barabit Seminary, I was contractual. So during these five years, I wrote 10 commentaries and I told them in my elective classes. So I told them one day a week and the rest of the week was mine. Put a lot of effort to do that. The last year before my move to North Carolina, where I'm retired now, you know, I did the following two, so in total 12 commentaries. My commentaries are very technical, so while dealing with those texts, you know, I really realized the, the key to the totality of Scripture. My 12 commentaries are uh, five on the Old Testament and uh, seven on the New Testament, and if you add land and covenant, which is basically called testament, so I'm versatile in both, you know, and I wanted to bring everything under one umbrella, and I started testing my thesis. Obviously, you begin with a thesis, and you have to test it, and then you refine it, and I decided to ask my former student to join me in two sessions, one in the Midwest and one on the East Coast to make it easy on people to travel, but on the same topic, which is my thesis, my take on the totality of Scripture, but mainly the Old Testament because it's the basis. So it so happened that the group in the Midwest, actually I did it in Minnesota here, were mainly scholars, knowledgeable, at least all of them knew 
Greek and Hebrew. So it was good, very technical. And it prepared me for the second session where I had also former students that knew these languages, but then others who did not know. And we decided that they would be taped, videotaped. So it was a repeated session, and then I edited this. It was a total of 25 hours. We compressed and took away all the asides and so on to make it flowing to the ear. And then, while doing this, I realized it was high time that I would write a book. A book still remains a book, you know, and you have to go in detail, technicality, scholarly, and so on. And I went for that, and I did it with the help of my editor in one year. But you have to count the previous two years, so it's a work of three full years, and plus, as Father Mark likes to repeat, that it was the fruit of 40 years of labor. I put it all together and it was massive, very sui generis, one of its kind. So the committee in charge of the publication in OCAPS decided and was firm in their decision to have it published as a hardcover because it's serious and of value, and it's lengthy, close to 500 pages. It ended up to be so. And they sought it to be endorsed by four international scholars, three of whom wrote blurbs, whether intentionally or so happened, but it is impressive that one is Orthodox, the second is Protestant, and the third is Roman Catholic from Poland. And the foreword by my former student and colleague, Professor Nikolai Rodi. And this is how the book came about, and the committee put a lot of work. As a book, it's impressive, I believe, fully convinced that its value is in the content. It's not written for scholars. I don't quote anyone, I'm not interested, I've never been interested. Scholars means to sit down with another person, yes, no. I think the Bible was written to feed the flock. But then the flock has to put the effort to obey and not to wander around. And in this sense, the obedience is to make the effort to take seriously and ask the help of other people to understand my argument when I'm dealing with Hebrew or Greek. It's mainly Hebrew. That, yes, there is an effort, but it's not impossible and definitely not unbridgeable. And the committee was so impressed with the content, especially the one who wrote the foreword. I mean, he was just turned around and realized the value of the book. And after having been consulted by Father Mark and Richard uh, as to a podcast, he wholeheartedly endorsed the podcast and uh, said that, and I'm thankful to Professor Roddy for that, it's a must because then... Father Paul would be able to go into more detail and give examples. So the podcast, I hope, will be not adding anything. I don't think I can add anything on the book. It's complete and full. But then you go into more details because you can't put all the possible asides in a book. You can put them in a footnote as a reference. But here, you know, let's say 
I have a couple of footnotes or I refer to texts. Roddy noticed that I like to quote lengthily texts because that's what we're dealing with. But at one point you have to stop. Then it will allow me to go into more details. And if my two counterparts, you, Father Mark or Richard, you yourself, as, or hear from others, you know, you can include and we can go into the book. Just a clarification for our listeners, what Father Paul is talking about is something Richard and I have mentioned already on the podcast, and that is our desire to do a Tuesday program with Father Paul. So instead of going into great detail about this book, which is a monumental project, as Father Paul said, of you know 500 pages, what we want to do is take a longer, slower, detailed look at Father Paul's work and just let him go into detail in certain areas. So this is kind of an introduction to what will become our Tuesday program, Tuesdays with Tarazi or Tarazi Tuesdays. i got to find a song, Father Paul, to go with your intro. (laughs) So long as you are for the Roman polity and not for the emperor. I think we're happy thinking of you as a paterfamilias. (laughs) (laughs) So we're very excited to introduce this new program. We're thankful we had the opportunity to talk about your book Again, listeners, if you're wondering, what is the book about? It's about the rise of scripture. Pick a copy up on ocapspress.com and you'll have a chance to hear its author go into detail on this program, which is exciting. It's an honor and privilege. And we're looking forward, Father Paul. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for both of you. Thank you. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.